Let's pause and pray. Father God, great and gracious and wonderful you are, and you are those things to us. So we thank you for your benevolent kindness, mercy, opportunity to know you, the clarity by which you present yourselves to us, the, the gentleness, the humbleness and heart that you express to sinners. Father, we thank you. And Lord, we need you. You will make a holy people for your own possession. And so I pray that you'd help us. And I pray that you'd help us to recognize that we look only to you to accomplish that in our lives. We're going to look at these words today, Lord. And if, if they're not possible in you, then they're not possible. And so we need you. We express our shortcomings, our failures, our inadequacy, and are helped only by your love and your patience, your forgiveness. And so restore us, refresh us anew. Give us zeal for your kingdom and your righteousness that all other things would find their place in our life. So help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's be clear on one thing before we begin. God is going to make for himself a holy nation. A royal priesthood of believers made in the image of his son. He will accomplish that. And we're going to see later on that if you want to understand God's will, understand that. That his will is to make you and us together a holy people. And let it also be understood that if the, uh, the label of hypocrite gets hurled at us in the church, who are supposed to be holy people, Understand that there's some inevitability in that. We are going to be imperfect. We are not going to live according to all righteousness at all times. There is going to be a message that we preach that we can't perfectly attain. That's the nature of serving a holy and perfect God and, and yet not being holy and perfect quite yet ourselves. But also, that shouldn't be a normal label that's hurled at us. We shouldn't just accept the fact that people can call the church hypocrites, uh, a place of hypocrites. We shouldn't accept that. The thing that we need to recognize that's, that's different from Israel as a, a, a nation in the Old Testament, God's set-apart nation in the midst of all these pagan nations, is that we actually are indwelt individually uh, and corporately by His Holy Spirit to live in and follow Him in His righteousness. That there is a possibility of growing in holiness and righteousness from a pure heart in the Christian life. Sometimes we get automatically defeated, I do at times, by the fact that we still wrestle with this imperfection, this flesh, this sin, and will never attain... Um, the, the holiness and the, and the glory, especially some of that that we read in the, 
Sermon on the Mount will never get there until we're in glory. And so you can, you can take that one of two ways. You can say, well, well, you know, won't get there, so won't try, won't look to follow him in righteousness. It'll just work out somehow, and I'll do what I can, and we'll make it eventually. Or you can just give up altogether. What's the use in trying? I can't attain this. Well, absolutely you can't attain it. And that's part of understanding through the whole of Scripture that Jesus has attained righteousness, a a legal standing before the Father where your sins are completely forgiven. There's no record of them on your account anymore through Him. And so you are justified and through that promised one day to be glorified, to reach a state of perfection and holiness that you can't know while you're here in this flesh. But there also is a work that he began, that he's going to finish, that carries on today. That moves its way through degrees of righteousness and holiness here and now. If that weren't the case, then the world would would never get to see any of the goodness that comes from God displaying His glory and grace and mercy here. It wouldn't affect the world in any way. If you don't grow in holiness, then the world is kind of devoid of goodness, so to speak. And Andy showed us last week that, you know, we're we're salt and light in Jesus, and this is all for what? The glory of God. Of God. So God is not going to short, shortchange himself on receiving glory. In large part, that's why he created what he created, to display his glory to the universe, his glory in grace and mercy, his glory in justice and righteousness, his glory in holiness, his glory in wrath. All of it is to be displayed through what he has created. So do you not think that God will make sure that his glory is known and displayed. That means that the promise to create a holy people, he will meet out, and he'll meet it out through his word. So as you hear these things, as you learn these things, as you observe these things, you better be also learning by the power of his spirit within his people to, to apply these things to your heart and then your life. We're also going to see what the difference is between this kind of new kingdom righteousness that comes to his people versus the righteousness of the religious elite of uh, the day and time in which he's speaking here. There's a big difference. Okay? The righteous people now are those that display the glory of the kingdom of heaven while on earth. One thing you're going to see through uh, this sermon and this explanation of this portion of Jesus' sermon is that righteousness is a requirement of the kingdom that holds fast to today. Nobody gets in or becomes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven apart from righteousness. Why the gospel is good news is because we inherit or are freely given that righteousness. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't see it that way. 
they have a form of self-righteousness that they think they can enter the kingdom with. Righteousness in the kingdom is always in the perfect degree. And you are right, and you are fulfilling, and you are happy, according to the first of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when you recognize that you don't have even a self-righteousness to get in. But you're happy because you've been humbled under that fact and have received the free grace and mercy of God that makes you righteous through one man. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? On one hand, bad news. But there's a solution for that, right? So anytime you're thinking of the gospel, you can think of it in these terms. God, man, problem, solution. This is a really simple way to, to keep that in your mind. Speaking on Matthew's kingdom ethics, or what it is, what it looks like to be righteous in the kingdom, and what characterizes kingdom citizens, a former professor of mine, Andreas Kostenberger, says this, that they must be undergirded by a heartfelt hunger and thirst for righteousness, a purity of heart that longs to fulfill the deeper underlying intent of the various constituent portions of the law. So that's fancy scholar talk, I guess, but in short, you can just say kingdom citizens are those who are uh, fulfilling Matthew 5, 6. We're hungry and thirsty. We desire righteousness, not on just the external level. We desire it to be inherent in us. We recognize that we have thoughts and desires that are unholy, and we want those to die. That is kingdom righteousness. That's a lot of why we study the Puritans here, because they seem to understand this. That as much as they looked holy on the outside, they recognized how unholy they were on the inside, and they were about Jesus doing his work in there before anything ever comes out here. And that's what we want to be about. And one thing we're going to learn today is the law is never the vehicle for our righteousness. That's not the intent of the law for us. We read that the law serves as a mirror for us. It shows us holiness and righteousness, but it also shows and reflects that that's not us. There's a standard that is unattainable. And in fact, Paul writes to the Galatians in 3.18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Abolish means to annul or officially declare invalid or inapplicable. Uh, demolish it. There's, in other words, make it void. Oh, don't pay attention to the first five books of the Old Testament anymore. That doesn't tell you anything. Just forget all that. You're, you're righteous in me now, so let's move on with that. Um, no. The law, 
that he speaks about here in verse 17 is the Torah, which simply means a set of instructions. It's also known as the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, right? The books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets, in, in Jesus' phrase here, would kind of characterize the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament. Notice how Jesus phrases his relationship to the law and the prophets. He doesn't say, as somebody points out, that he's not come to abolish but to uphold them. He does say that he's not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, satisfy the law, satisfy the requirements of it completely live up to the righteous requirement of God to inherit his kingdom. Have you ever thought about Jesus doing it to that degree? And if you have, you quickly realize that is a big task. Impossible task. Except for Jesus, right? And also he's fulfilling the law in the sense that it's pointing to him. He's not only going to live it to a degree that you and I can't understand yet, but he's revealing it. He is the revelation of all that the law points to. Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses is the lawgiver, right? He's the one passing these things down from Yahweh himself to the people. And then he says, somebody like me who's going to do that is coming, and it's to him you shall listen. John 6, 14, when people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the Jews at that time are looking for what Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, 15, a prophet, a singular person who's coming to give or explain the law that we are supposed to listen to. It's, it's a future figure that they've been waiting for and looking for. Listen to this at the beginning of Acts here, Acts 3, 18 through 23. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And here he is, Jesus, in Matthew 5, as that prophet, speaking to us about the things that we must listen to. And if we don't, we will be destroyed from being or existing among God's people. In Psalm 1, there is a congregation of the righteous. And that comes through, at the beginning of Psalm 1, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, Jesus. 
So unless you listen to Jesus, you don't get in to the congregation of the righteous. And listen to what Jesus is telling you, right? Listen to the fact that Jesus explains himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Listen to the fact that he tells you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Listen to the fact that he tells you that he's come to save you and that if he doesn't wash you, then you have no part in him. Listen to the fact that he is telling you that everything you need, I am supplying. So it is a big, heavy thing to realize that if we don't listen to him, we don't get in, but listen to what he's telling you. You come in through the door. I'm the door, he says. He says in John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. What's Moses writing? Moses is writing the law. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus completes or fulfills the law. And in fact, the law is describing a righteousness that is only found in him. Now, there's aspects of the law that was largely used to communicate to a, a nation state whose king was God. It's, it's what scholars call a, uh, call a theocratic nation. Okay? God is sovereign king over that nation in an area of other nations. And he's revealing what righteousness looked like as his chosen nation. But understand, there's parts of the law that make restitution for hard hearts. Moses gives a certificate of divorce to help those who are going to be victims of it. But the degree to which the law displays righteousness is there is no divorce. You divorce, you break the law. You break the law, you're not allowed in the kingdom. After Jesus inaugurated the new kingdom in his blood... In his body, he imparted his spirit to us, to them. Therefore, we now have the ability to live according to uh, righteousness from a pure heart and a broader and deeper application of the Ten Commandments, or what some people call the Ten Words. So you, you think about this kind of external holiness that they were seeing from Pharisees and Sadducees um, in the first century. You, believer have the very spirit of the righteous one living within you, what should we expect to see? The righteousness of God. It's possible now. You should have that hope. And that even as you struggle with sin and flesh and all that sort of stuff, and even old desires that hang around, those can die. Because he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. He overcomes these things. He defeats these things. He replaces your desires and your hungers by, with, with his. And what did he say his food was? To do the will of the Father. So then he makes that live in you. So one of the great characteristics or ways to understand that your spirit is testifying with us, spirit, that you're a child of God, is your desire for holiness. Not just a man, okay, I've got to make sure that I'm um, at church more. I've got to make sure that I'm giving more regularly. I've got to make sure I'm reading my Bible more regularly. No, I've got to make sure 
that my number one desire when I get up in the morning is to seek and know Jesus, who is righteousness. And to live in a way that pleases him from a great hunger and thirst to do so. Not because that's going to get me in, but because he's called me to be an ambassador for his, that by my life he may be glorified. And only he's worthy of it. So if my life is going to be used to do anything of value, of substance, may it be used to give him glory. Matthew's also presenting here, we start in verse 18 in Matthew 5, For truly I say to you, I say to you, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew presents Jesus as the greater Moses, right? And Jesus said so, that we just read. The greater Moses, who you can go back to verse 1 in Matthew 5, and the greater Moses who goes up on the mountain and brings the law, brings the law to bear on the people. But in fact, what Jesus is doing is giving deeper meaning and application to that law. Some scholars would suggest that Matthew even organizes his whole gospel in a way that mirrors the first five books of the law, in that Jesus has five distinct discourses in Matthew along the way that kind of signal a shift in what Matthew is explaining in those sections. But this sermon here reveals that righteousness is more deep-seated and, ex- and, and internal than, than merely external law-abiding. We're going to see that Jesus isn't about the fact that you cannot commit adultery. You don't get kudos for that. Jesus is about the fact that you have lust in your heart. By the time sins work themselves out, you've already lost. The battle begins internally. We have to recognize that, that we have the ability by the Spirit to take every thought captive we read in Romans 12. And, and therefore, we're not even, we're, we're, we shouldn't even see a suggestion of those things coming to the surface. We have the ability to live in a way that stops us in our tracks and recognizes where these things happen. That sin is birthed in the heart. And when it's coupled with a great desire to fulfill that, then it gives way to the external action. So before you ever see anybody fall in a great or small way, understand that they already fell along before that. He says that heaven, until heaven and earth pass away, not this iota, not a dot will pass from the law. In Greek, the smallest letter is an iota. It looks like a little lowercase i. Sometimes it has a dot above it or an inflection, kind of half circle, to signify how the rest of the word is to be pronounced when it's in there. In Hebrew, the smallest um, letter is a yoda, not from Star Wars, but from the alphabet. And then the dot or the tittle is the little marks that are made um, to signify how you pronounce those things. And Jesus saying, all of that is complete righteousness from God. Until heaven and earth pass away and my people are actually glorified and perfected, the righteous, righteous requirement of the law stands. 
Righteousness is always required for the kingdom. The law is not out of use until the kingdom is fully actualized. Still a reference point for us. It's still a place to see, oh, Jesus fulfills that. Oh, Jesus does that. To a, to a degree that you might not understand in just reading through the law. Right? Like, there's no hatred in him than unrighteous anger. There's no lust in him. He's that different. He says in Luke 16, 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They're accomplished. The Messiah comes to fulfill God's will. And God's will is that his people be made holy. We went through 1 Thessalonians, and we know in chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, being made holy, that you abstain from sexual morality, and so on and so forth. Therefore, he fulfills that. Jesus accomplishes God's will to sanctify us, make us holy. And he keeps us, he tells us, he tells the Father, hey, I've lost none that you've given to me except the son of perdition who was prophesied to do what he did. He's, he keeps us until our glorification in which we will dwell in the presence of the righteous and holy God forever, being able to live there because his righteousness covers us. So God doesn't cast us out. And you'll see that if you're one of his. You'll see that there is no um, imperfection or unholy thing that is dwelling in his presence when you're there and you're going to be amazed and be glorifying him forever because you realize you're only there because he's righteous. See what I'm saying? So righteousness is now you because he put it on you. That's why Paul's always telling people, put on Christ, put on Christ. Because you have the ability by his spirit, you have the call to do so in the power of his spirit, and the world is looking for that so they can see the glory of God. It's almost like your presence with people should kind of be a point of conviction. What the Bible describes is the aroma of Christ. And to some people, that'll just mean death, or to a lot of people, so they won't like it. So your, your light from Jesus that you're reflecting will confront the darkness that they're living in, and they will seek to either get away from that or extinguish that as quick as possible as to not have their evil deeds uncovered. And some will see that, hear that, watch that, and be drawn to it. And we don't know who that is or when that is or how that will come to be, but that's why we live this way. But he did it. He accomplished this. This righteousness thing that's too big for us is fully from him. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's not going to have a holy people unless he makes a holy people. So he does. 
He's able to do that while staying true to the fact that he must punish sin. There's the gospel. There's the cross of Christ. That he is at one time committing himself to punish sin and also giving us righteousness. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Which begs the question, can I break the law just a little, right? Is that okay? If you've got to that point where you're asking the question, like, how much sin can I get away? How much sin is okay for a Christian to live in? Zero. It's never okay. You, you may be justified. Your, your eternity is, is sealed and guaranteed by the fact that he gave you the Spirit, but it's not okay. He's, he's patient. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He's gracious, but it's not okay. Paul's responding to his discussion on grace, and he says, so, should we continue to sin, that grace would abound, that we continue to glorify the fact that God forgives us even though we're sinning? And he says, by no means. You don't abuse grace. You don't understand it then. You don't understand the value of your salvation and what God paid for it if you're okay with your sin. If you're okay with impure thoughts, if you're okay with uh, moments of imperfection, you have to give grace to yourself knowing that this is going to be a part of it and you're going to struggle, but you have to remain disciplined and devoted to following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, all that stuff has no place there. The moments that you sin are the moments you're not following him. Understand that that's going to happen. He's gracious and merciful to forgive you. He's patient. He will get you to glory. He will get you to the fact that you are, are going to be perfect, but there's going to be points throughout your life that you will not follow him. And I think the more mature you get in your faith, the more you're broken over those things. Those little things. Sometimes some of you tell me about sins you've committed and you, you couch it in a way like it's going to be a big one. Like, here we go, this is going to shake the church. And then you tell me about something internally that you've been doing for a long time. And at that point, I'm encouraged that the Spirit is at work in you to uncover all those imperfections, all that way. It's like David, right? Search me, O God, and find any uh, ill way or unclean way in me and get it out of there. says in verse 19 in Matthew 5, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is that some are untying the law from obligation to fulfill it or live in it, or from the conscience. They're unbind, trying to unbind people's conscience from what the law is telling them about their own righteousness. So why is that a problem? That's a problem because if you untie uh, the law, from the perfect fulfilling of the law uh, from people's conscience is having to perfectly obey it because complete and perfect righteousness is required, then you allow people um, to look to themselves for self-righteousness and not outside of themselves for righteousness they can't attain. Therefore, you distort the gospel. We are supposed to be looking at the law and then being broken and looking for mercy and help. The law is supposed to point you to Jesus, every bit of it. So his, Jesus' discussion and discourse here on the law is going to get super, super intense uh, at the heart level because you're supposed to recognize that that's not describing you. It's describing him. So we have to look at how detailed the law can be, how perfect um, it is, and then look outside of ourselves. In the sense that we now have this Holy Spirit, as James says, we can actually be doers of this word and not hearers only. Okay, So we're going to hear this law, we'll be broken by it, we're going to look to Jesus, hopefully, as the one who fulfills it, and then, by his Spirit, we're going to Follow him in doing it, not for justification, but in light of justification. I love this. It's, it's always visible um, to me when I study Ezra 7.10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's kind of like the requirements he gives for overseers, pastors, teachers, elders in 1 Timothy 3, above reproach. Those who do these things. And it's possible. It's possible to live as a kingdom citizen with a pure heart. Notice we're not talking perfectly. But it's possible to move towards perfection by the power of Jesus. Then he gets to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. He just dropped a bomb there. Because these people are listening. They look to the, to the uh, scribes and Pharisees as just something they can't attain. So Jesus says you, you need a righteousness that's more than that. And then you get into the kingdom. Exceeds, meaning that it's abundant or plentiful. But he's also, notice what he's also saying. Matthew is great about highlighting the parts where Jesus takes jabs at the Pharisees and the scribes. I love it. He really gets at them in Matthew. Um, their righteousness doesn't cut it. That's what he just told them. That's serious to them. 
in Matthew 23, 3 through 7, Jesus tells them, this, that's a chapter where he gives these like seven woes about the Pharisees, all right? He really lays it on them. So do and observe whatever they tell you, okay, because they're, they're speaking from the seat of the law, okay, which is righteousness. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Later on in that same chapter, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's what we're trying to avoid here. You know, um, before I came to serve here, I had a number of people inside and outside the, the church here at FBC Holt that said they are super nice people. They are just really nice people. And I would say amen to that. You know, five plus years, and amen. <laughs> super nice people. Great people. That's not what I'm after. I'm after holy people. You're nice, keep doing it. Abound in it. But we're after holiness. What, is, what am I told in Colossians uh, 1 about what, what is going to be presented to Jesus in regards to his bride, the church? A spotless, holy bride. That's what we're after. That's what we're working for. And guess what? You're always going to have a need for pastors and such because you're never going to get there until you're in glory. So the work is going to always continue. It's unending. Andreas Kostenberger paints the picture of kingdom righteousness by the power of the Spirit in this way. He says, mere external compliance, which does not arise from purity of heart and a genuine heartfelt hunger and thirst for righteousness will inexorably or ultimately result in hypocrisy, as in the case of the scribes and Pharisees. Religious exercises whose external facade betrays a lack of inner devotion to God, and listen to this, is thus schizophrenic, disingenuous, and ultimately deceptive. If you preach and proclaim a righteousness that is merely external, you are deceiving people into thinking that righteousness in the kingdom is characterized by what you can do. Righteousness in the kingdom is characterized by the fact that you look to Jesus for your righteousness and you follow him as he makes you righteous. So we got to stop the stuff that we, the, the, the tricking ourselves, the deceiving ourselves, knowing the gospel is a free gift of God on one hand, and then trying to earn it on the other. That's schizophrenic. And that's being disingenuous to what we believe and say about the gospel. We have to realize that we are now spirit-born people. 
that should have a desire for a, a holy communion with God from the heart. Just like when sin comes out in acts that you do, it started here. The same way, Jesus says, is righteousness. The things that you do come out after they've been born here. Your humility, your service, better be spirit-born. And that better be the message that you proclaim. First to yourself, and then to others. You can't add anything to the free gift of justification that you've been given. The free righteousness. You can't add to it. He's just making you now to walk in it. He goes on to say that true faith trusts God who sees in secret and he will reward what he sees in secret. In other words, if your devotion isn't private and intimate, isn't, if that's not where you start your, your religion, your faith, then it's no good. I had the privilege of attending a conference this week on Charles Spurgeon, that uh, 19th century uh, preacher in London. And it was over uh, Spurgeon's devotional life and maybe what we can glean from that as we seek to follow Christ. And one thing I thought was so awesome is Spurgeon's devotional life is somewhat of a mystery. You know why? Because it was private. It was intimate. People didn't get to observe that. There's talk of him being in his study with lots of people around and all of a sudden disappearing to a small room type closet for five to ten minutes and then coming back and picking up right where he left off. What was he doing? He was alone with the Lord. He didn't share what he did in that room. He kept it between him and God. He kept an ongoing communication with the Lord. And then you see some... 66-plus full-time ministries that reach thousands coming from his inner private devotion to God. You see his faith get worked out because he is so close to him. He trusts God. He seeks God. He relies on God. He depended on God. Knowing that the matter of righteousness is already settled, therefore you're free. You're free from being bound uh, by chains and trying to get yourself out of them. You're free to live. You're free to live for him. I'll leave you with this. Matthew 6.33. Jesus speaking of the freedom that people have now in him. He tells them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness. So a life of discipleship for the believer is looking to Jesus and following likewise. Trusting all things to God that he is doing a work in you, that he wants your focus and your desire to be for him and following him. He'll take care of everything else. I was telling my wife the other day that we are unlike everybody else in the world and that we have 
a freedom from the burden of, of the worry of the daily necessities of life and are called to a intense, um, devout, intimate, serious focus on what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom and what it looks like to follow him in his righteousness. That's your concern every day. It's not where your meal's coming from. It's not what, where you're going to get uh, the next clothes that you need to buy. It's, it's not um, if you're going to die or not, even. It's about looking to him. You know why Jesus says that in Matthew 6? Because of Matthew 5, 16. That when they see you, somebody who's living as a citizen of the kingdom and is focused on the righteousness of God in that kingdom, living in that, even while they're here on earth, God's going to get the glory. It's going to be, it's going to taste good. It's going to be bright. And it's not going to point people to you. It's going to point people to Jesus who has the words of life and who has the mercy of God to give them. And so I pray that you would take your holiness serious so that God would be glorified. He's promised you good in it. And so trust that and walk in it. So I pray you'd respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing.